0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash SlashFilm. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to SlashFilm Daily for Friday, April 24th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is SlashFilm Editor-in-Chief Peter soretta and joining me on to his podcast is SlashFilm Managing Editor, Jacob Hall.
2: Hello,
3: hello.
1: Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Squire Trambouille.
4: Hey, everyone.
1: And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So, uh, how have you guys been hanging in there? Has it been been just, like, hunkered down? Uh, Did anybody have any, like, fun times where they left their house this week and have any, like, interesting interactions?
2: I went to a Domino's Pizza. (laughs) Wait, I I... I parked in their parking lot with them, and then I called their number, and they unlocked the door and came out with a mask and gloves and handed me my pizza, and then I drove home.
1: <laughs> Why didn't you just order it for delivery?
2: Because it's literally a five-minute drive from us, so I can, it's uh, easier okay. for me. I don't want to pay for a five-minute delivery.
3: <laughs> but, but yeah, I, went
2: I, to... I, I go out for, for emergency grocery runs and for Domino's pizza. Everything else is DoorDash. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I went to the store this week to get some stuff that we were out of, and I decided to check out the toy section, just because that's what I do when I go to the store, and I, I got some cool Star Wars stuff, which made my week fun.
1: What kind of cool Star Wars stuff?
3: Uh, I, I happened to walk to the toy section right when they had brought out the um, a skid that had the new Empire Strikes Back 80th Anniversary uh, Black Series and Retro figures on them, so I picked up uh, the Retro Boba Fett and the Bespin Luke, which is like uh, they brought back since it's been um, I don't know out of discontinued since it was re- originally released in the Black Series line, um, and I also picked up uh, Zori Bliss because I think that she looks cool.
1: Yeah, I love the retro figures.
3: Yeah, they they have a, the, um they did Han and Leia and Yoda and Luke and Boba Fett. No Darth Vader, which I was surprised by, but yeah, they they look just like the the old uh, packaging for the figures from the '80s. Yeah,
1: what is it like the only there's like some mention on the back is the only way you can tell it's like a reprint
3: uh i'm not sure what the specific uh difference is be- between them but yeah it's it's
1: something subtle okay let, let, let's jump into what we've been doing chris what have you been doing this week
5: uh i recorded a bonus episode of my podcast uh, 21st century spielberg um i originally was just going to do one episode a month and then I've changed that. So uh, to two episodes a month. So here's how it's going to play out. So the first episode will always be just me talking about the two movies in question. And then the second episode will be me with a guest. And, uh, this is the the first bonus episode. My guest was, uh, Liz Shannon Miller. She wrote for IndieWire. She's a freelancer. She writes for a bunch of sites. So that's up now, everyone, please go listen to it. Rated on iTunes, all that stuff. And, uh, Stay tuned because eventually one of the guests will be none other than HT. <laughs> I
1: thought you were going to say none other than Steven Spielberg. I thought the same no.
4: thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I am me. just as cool as Steven Spielberg.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, cooler in my opinion. Yeah. Not, not, not to downplay it... HT, but.
3: <laughs> <laughs> is it hard to do a podcast by yourself? Most of the podcasts i listen listened to aren't one person. And I'm wondering how hard it is to just do it when you're the only one talking.
5: Uh, I mean, I'm fine with it because I, I I use I write a script for myself. The only thing I have trouble with is not even trouble. The only thing that causes uh, like an issue is the editing because there's a lot of like pausing and me going uh, trying to find my place, and so I go through all that and cut that all out because no one wants to hear that shit. So uh, yeah, I haven't had a tr- problem with it at all. But you know, it is easier to have a guest on because you know it lightens the load a bit. But um. Yeah, so everyone, please, again, I, I put a lot of work into this. I pay for the, the hosting. Listen to it, or else it's all a waste of time. Speaking about please,
2: it. If I slipped you, if, if I slipped you a uh, $5 bill, could I be on the Munich and War of the Worlds episode? I, uh, see, I already have a guest lined up, but now, hmm. Maybe oh, I'll... Um, I, I am mostly joking. I'm just saying that's my, most, that's my favorite uh, modern Spielberg period, so I'm looking forward to that one quite a bit.
5: Okay.
0: What Jacob means is a $20 bill.
1: Yeah, let's up the yeah up the price a little bit, and then we'll we'll talk. <laughs> well, speaking of putting a lot of work into a project, Ben, you completed a major slash film project this week.
0: I did. Yes, this morning uh, we published it. It is a an oral history of the powerline concert scene from the end of a goofy movie, which just celebrated its twenty fifth anniversary uh, earlier this month. So I spoke with a bunch of people, including the director of the movie and. Um, the guy who voiced Goofy who when I was speaking with him on the phone slipped into a Goofy voice like a like an impression and he's been voicing Goofy since 1987 so he's very good at it and it is uh, it was really surreal to just be on the phone with this guy and like have Goofy suddenly sort of like uh, virtually appear on the other end of the line it was really really strange but um, pretty cool I, I uh, am a big fan of this movie and and this song means a lot to me. My wife and I actually played eye to eye at our wedding reception, and uh, one of our best friends did the perfect cast dance, like on the on the dance floor, and it was a big deal. And now it's like a big like a uh, TikTok dance challenge and all that stuff. There's. People doing the perfect cast, all you know, and anywhere you look online these days. But uh, this was several years ago. So um, yeah. Anyway, the I I think the piece turned out really, really well. So if you're uh, if you're listening and you're a fan, if you grew up, you know, watching a goofy movie and you still have fond memories of uh, the power line scene, definitely check this out.
1: And uh, you made an unlikely discovery on YouTube.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this one is very random, but I thought that I would share it with you guys because, well, I don't know. I thought it was cool. So uh, this was this actually happened a couple weeks ago when um, Adam Schlesinger died. He was the guy who uh, helped write the um, the theme song for That Thing You Do. And my wife and I were talking about the song, and I think she said that she had never seen the movie, and the only reason that she knew the song was because of an InSync cover back from back in the day. And my wife is an InSync fan for life. She was obsessed back then, but she still loves them. And we got off on this InSync tangent, and she told me about this time that when she was in junior high, her one of her friends hit her up on AOL Instant Messenger and asked if she wanted to go to a concert. And my wife was living in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, and the concert was in Orlando, which is like, I don't know, two and a half hours away or something like that. Um, the friend had tickets, and Amy, my wife, was like, yeah, I'll go. So Amy asked her dad if he would drive her, if she could acquire tickets to this concert. And he probably was like, how was a junior high kid going to get Tickets to this thing that's, you know, two and a half hours away. So he said yes and didn't realize that she already had the tickets. So she ended up going to see Insync in Orlando. And we found that concert, a video of that concert on YouTube. And before we started watching it, she explained <laughs> that she remembered exactly what she was wearing um, a yellow shirt and red and yellow Roxy shorts and where she was sitting, which was like stage left courtside, And she was incredibly specific. And we started playing this video, which is from May 21st, 2000. So 20 years old. And we saw her multiple times in the crowd in In this video on YouTube. We're like, holy shit. I'm pretty sure that's you and we pause the video and like Tried (laughs) to do all this analysis and there were several moments where she pops up and it's pretty clear that it's her So I just thought it was kind of a mind-blowing thing like, you know a random conversation turned to Going to YouTube and then finding my wife in this video
1: 20 years later. So uh, YouTube it's kind of a crazy thing That is crazy. You know, I wasn't gonna mention this on the podcast But I did mention it on Twitter because I, uh, like a lot of people who uh, write about things or do things, I have, like, a Google alert. So if someone mentions my name somewhere, I can see, like, you know, who's covering, like, a story that I wrote or something like that around the web or if someone's, like, talking about, um, you know, ordinary adventures or something like that. And I got this Google alert the other day that – that there was this YouTube video up of a concert that I shot in, I think 2003. It sounds about right. 2003 in uh, the middle East in Boston. It's a small club. And I shot it with my friend Elaine and uh, someone from that band uh, p- published the video on YouTube. So it was, it was really weird to see like this half an hour concert that I shot back in the day when I, when, when I wanted to be a filmmaker and, um, and uh, you can kind of sometimes see in some camera angles me up on stage running around with a camera. But uh, <laughs> it, it's shot in like mini DV. So it's like four by three. And it's like the worst quality. But, oh, uh, wow. yeah. But, uh, anyways, uh, Jacob, what have you been up to?
2: Less what I've been up to and more of a conversation point I want to ask you guys, which is I've noticed that a lot of the things that I would normally buy at my local comic and game shop just simply aren't available on Amazon. Uh, they're sold out from the original manufacturer in some cases or, or not shipping. So I sent my local common game store a Instagram DM saying, hey, I know you got to close right now, uh, but if you have something in stock, would you ship it to me? I'll pay for shipping. And turns out that they were. And through email, I ordered, you know, $50 worth of miniature painting supplies and brushes and stuff. And there's an open lines thing. if you ever need anything, you know, shoot us a message and we will we'll ship it to you. And my whole thing is like, this is convenient for me because I'll, as fast as Amazon, and as local, and supporting a local yeah. business, so I'm wondering: Is there been a situation with any of you guys? Uh, is there a business that you missed? Is there a business you've been talking to? Has uh, what are your favorite places doing to stay afloat during this time? I'm curious if if this is happening elsewhere or if this is a unique case.
1: I, I don't know if this is a unique case, but I will say this: that it is a lot easier these days to get something from a local store than it is on Amazon. Like I've been, there's so many things that I've wanted that I've gone on Amazon and it's like, oh yeah, you'll, you'll get this a month from now. Or even, um, Kitra and I are trying to do, this is a unique problem right here. <laughs> Kitra and I are, are trying to up our, our game and live streaming on Ordinary Adventures. We do these live streams like once a month and, uh, we've generally done this with our, you know, our webcam or our phone. But we want to do it with our camera because the quality is so much better on the camera. And it turns out that capture cards to capture a camera going to your computer are sold out everywhere because everybody's doing that for like video conferencing or, you know, for their meetings or whatever. So I've been trying to track down like this one capture card and it's like not only is it sold out everywhere, but it's uh, if you go on like eBay or something, it's like four or five times the price. So, um, but has anybody, Jacob, you were mentioning supporting local businesses Does anybody else here, like left their house and supported locally.
4: Well, I want to say that this is not a specific local, uh, store for me, but if you are looking to buy physical books on Amazon and you're finding that difficult because of the delay in, uh, shipping, because Amazon is prioritizing groceries and other coronavirus related essential items, um, there is a website called bookshop.org that uh, financially supports local independent bookstores and you can order from them and get books in um, like less than a week and uh it's yeah a great way of supporting local bookstores because it raises funds for them and uh you can yeah you can buy books um that are physical i really I, I have trouble myself reading books on an e-reader which i don't have or an ipad which i don't have so i'd have to read on my computer if i were to borrow from the book from my library for example so i've all i really um uh appreciate bookshop.org or, and like other sort of like mean, physical books in general so bookshop.org is a great thing i'm not sponsoring it by the way because we're not <laughs> sponsored but i just want to say like a recommendation for people who like physical books
2: but if bookshop.org does want to sponsor us so they can reach us at <laughs>
1: <laughs> do they ca- do they carry a, a, a certain book by Louis a Safian? is the question
2: <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm gonna find out <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I, actually, I, I typed in that url in a moment hd said it because i i just lo- i not being able to go to a bookstore, I could walk around a bookstore for a few months now. It's driving me crazy. I used to be, I used to be my every Saturday morning was go out and spend two hours at local bookstores in Austin. And I can't do it anymore. You have like uh, that,
1: that awesome bookstore too. The, the, uh, I forget the name of it. Like the huge yeah, book,
2: bookstore. Uh, book people is the local big one. Yeah. 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 It's, it's fantastic. But like also there's a great used bookstore scene in Austin and there's even a, even, there's even a bar to noble five minutes for me. So I used to be able to go to, I went to a bookstore at least once a week before this started. And, um, it, it, not being able to do that is driving me crazy. So I'm going to support bookshop.org, who does not carry anything by Lewis A. Safian, unfortunately.
4: Oh, no.
1: Damn it. Uh, you know, one last tip. Uh, I know a few weeks ago everybody was, like, looking for toilet paper. And I mentioned, you know, if you're looking for essentials you can't find at your local grocery store or Target or something like that uh, to try, like, you know, a place that people wouldn't look, like a CVS. Uh, Kitra, this past week... Uh, went out shopping, and in part of the shopping, she went to a Daiso store to grab some Japanese candy, which I'll talk about later. But they had tons of toilet paper at the Daiso store. So I'm not sure if that's because people are racist or what, but if you're looking for toilet paper, maybe try the Daiso store. You know, Peter,
2: I wasn't, I wasn't going to mention this because it's, it's inherently gross, uh, but... My wife and I were so excited to find toilet paper at a local store. at uh, driving home, we <laughs> said we cannot be as excited about this ever again. I got on my phone and ordered a bidet. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted a bidet. I'm just like worried about installing it because I don't have a, like an outlet near me, and I like a lot of them need like a power outlet of some kind.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you updated. Uh, yeah. I, I know nobody wants to talk about this, but you know, in these times. <laughs> hearing every day review on your movie news show may be beneficial to all of you. Yeah.
1: Okay. Let's move into what we've been watching. Uh, I, this past week, binge watched my way through most of Disney Plus's new show prop culture. And this is a show that is a docu series. Each episode is, it follows this guy who goes on the hunt for original props from Disney and Fox movies. And it's kind of globe trotting. Uh, it, it, it's he goes through the Disney archives. He goes to some interesting locations. It, it's really a the construct of it is not really that he's like looking for these things, but really that you're getting the stories behind the making of the props, where they disappear to, how they were recovered, sometimes how they were restored. Uh, part of some of these episodes, we see some some big. Iconic props that have been in disrepair and get restored to their original condition. Um, some stars and creators are being reunited with these these objects, and they, they tell stories. Uh, it's nice to, like, step inside the Disney archives, and not just Disney archives, but, like, they have, like, some, like, un- like, some warehouses in the middle of the San Fernando Valley, where they're just, like, walking down these, like, aisles that look like it's from the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's just, like every movie prop you could imagine on these shelves that they, that they have kept over the year. Uh, They, they, you know, some of these episodes are like, you know, nightmare before Christmas. And they're dealing with all these uh, handcrafted stop motion animation props. Some were like a Tron episode where uh, in in the episode, they, they did uh, attempt to restore a, the original Flynn's arcade sign from the original movie. I'm not sure if I want to ruin who appears in this, but there's some really shocking – having Disney be a part of this, uh, I think, gave them access to to some talent. uh, Some talent I haven't seen in decades. Some people I think you'd freak out over. Uh, This show is so good. This in Imagineering story, like, are really the high bar of what the service should be making and not, like, a lot of the crap that they are producing. Um, I think this whole show, when it goes online, they're they're putting the entire season online. Uh, Brad, you also saw this, right?
3: Yeah, um, I watched the entire season. Uh, I have a review up on com that you can check out. And, yeah, all eight of the episodes come out on May 1st. And this is exactly the kind of material that I want to see. Uh, from disney plus i really want to see them dig into their history and go through their archives and talk to people behind some of their biggest productions and hear these cool stories and like this series is just all about that it's like full of some of the the most the nerdiest you know movie conversations about how props were made and the struggles of production and like it's there's a lot of reverence and love for these movies but then like Every now and then there's little stuff here, too, where, like, uh, I, I was really interested in the Tron episode about how director uh, Steven Lisberger is kind of, he was kind of jaded and really didn't seem, like, all that hyped about looking through stuff at first. And, like, he he just keeps all this Tron stuff in this yurt that's on his property. And But, like, even the host talks about how as they started going through stuff, it felt like he... You know, was remembering, you know how how excited he was when he was working on the project, and you know how even though it was really hard to pull off, just you know it felt innovative what they were doing, and they were excited and passionate about it. Um, and yeah, just it just sounds like a nightmare it was to like make Tron as far as like how they needed uh, created the visuals for it, uh, especially when it comes to you know all the overlays they had to do. You know, there's there's several different layers on all the stuff that happens in the grid. Um, but yeah, that's just there's so many cool props here and the conversations they have with choreographers and costume designers and special effects artists and directors and actors. Um in my opinion, I think the the best episode, the one that I enjoyed the most I think, was the Honey I Shrunk the Kids episode.
1: I was shocked um, at how much I enjoyed that. Like I wasn't even looking forward to that. It was just so good.
3: Yeah, it's it's really, really good. Um You didn't want to spoil it. I don't know. I kind of want to just because I feel like it will get people to watch it more if they're not necessarily super excited about it. Okay,
1: go for it. If you want to skip, you know, skip a minute into the future if you don't want to hear who might appear in this episode.
3: I mentioned it in the review, and it's just so cool because we haven't seen him do anything really in, in like a long time. Like, sightings of him on camera for anything are rare, but Rick Moranis is in the Honey I Shrunk the Kids episode of Prop Culture, and they have a whole conversation with him looking back at the movie and talking about uh behind the scenes and like he uh he gets to you see, you know, Wayne Zelensky's glasses again and they talk about uh, you know, the shrinking machine which uh they restore since they modified it for Honey We Shrunk Ourselves and it's just it's such a cool episode. I just um the series is really, really cool and you should definitely check it out.
1: Yeah. There, there's shows like this that have been on TV before this, like, I, I know, Brad, I was talking to you earlier, and you mentioned Toy Hunter, and which is an, an enjoyable reality show, uh, and I used to watch this show called Hollywood Treasures, which I think maybe you can still buy episodes on iTunes or something oh, like that. Oh yeah,
3: I forgot about that. Yeah. And that, that was, really was about
1: hot. the company uh, profiles and history and how they would like be searching for items for their their, you know, prop auctions. But both those shows as good as enjoyable as they are, they were kind of produced on like, you know, a I, I guess, like, not a uh, major television, like a reality show kind of budget. Like, you could really feel that there's like just two guys there. Here, it really feels so cinematic. So, like, it's spent, it feels like they spent so much money on this. And it's, uh, I'm just glad that, like, you know, movie history is getting such a spotlight in this. And I hope, I hope they produce more of these because as much as, uh, you know, there's so many movies they could be doing. They could be doing all the Star Wars movies. They could be doing Marvel. They could. Do, there's so many Disney animated films. There's so many Disney classics. Fox, like the the fact that they have Fox as a you know ground to to search and, uh, you know they could do like a, one on like Alien, the Alien franchise. It, it's I don't know. I I really highly recommend the show. Uh, Brad, did you want to, anything else? to add?
3: No. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I I hope they keep this series going for a while and. I, well, I would like to see some of the ones that you talked about. I I think that a lot of those bigger movies have been pretty well covered when it comes to like featurettes and making of and documentaries. And I would like to see them dig into, you know, more of the like the live action movies that they don't really they wouldn't really have a lot of featurettes about or anything like that. And they haven't really done full on reunions for, you know, I would love to see stuff like uh, the Mighty Ducks and, and things like that, you know, and then look back at those movies and, you know, get those props.
1: Yeah. I don't know, it, it's just there's something about it's not even about like, you know, hearing from these people that we've heard a hundred times before. It's seeing them come into contact with these props that they haven't seen in decades. Like who who would have thought that I would have cared to see Joe Johnston, you know, come into contact with the, the Shrink Ray prop from Honey I Shrunk the Kids and like just like That's true. Yeah, it I don't know, it's just it, it's such a great show. Highly recommended. Uh Brad, what else have you been watching?
3: Uh, I've also been watching Middleditch and Schwartz, uh, which is a new Netflix uh, series, um, I guess you could say a limited series, of three improvised comedy specials starring Thomas Middleditch from Silicon Valley and Ben Schwartz from Parks and Recreation, uh, who's also the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog in the, the new movie. And uh, I'm a big fan of improv comedy. Uh, I, I did improv for a few years. And I've just always been a huge comedy nerd. I've loved, uh, you know, I've read through the UCB uh, improv manual, and I, you know, I just love seeking out anything and everything about improv. When I was in Los Angeles for a while, I used to go to the UCB theater all the time, and it's just something that I love. And so, for these shows, uh, Thomas Middleditch and Ben Schwartz went on went on tour all over the country, and they did long-form improv shows where. Uh, they ask the audience if there's anything that anybody is excited about or nervous about that's coming up in their life. And they ask them a series of questions about, uh, you know, w- what it is and who the kind of people that are involved and that kind of thing. And they take the answers that they get and they turn it into essentially a 45-minute uh, improv show comprised of uh, several different scenes, sometimes one long scene that runs, you know, it has a variety of characters in it. And Middle Ditch and Schwartz play a variety of these characters. There's no props except for two chairs, and it's all created right on the spot, just this one time. Nothing is written or anything like that. And these shows are hilarious. Uh, Middle Ditch and Schwartz together, man, They you can tell they're really good friends, but they're just really in tune with each other comedically. And like what they pull off with these improv shows is amazing. The way that they tie stuff together from the beginning of the show, and they have these callbacks. Some like Some of the stuff that they execute feel like they were actually, you know, written, you know, because of just how well they bring things together. Um, And so, yeah, uh, all three of them are on Netflix, they're a little less than an hour, and
0: they're just hilarious. Ben, you watched these too, what did you think? (laughs) Oh, my God. They were incredible. I, I have not laughed this long in a long time, probably since I saw them live. And I talked about that. Um, you know, they, they played here in L.A. and I, I went and saw them and it was like one of the best uh, live experiences I've had. And watching these specials, these three episodes um, was exactly like that. So I'm, I'm so glad now that every, every you know, anybody with a Netflix subscription can have access to this because, it's so, so funny. It's, it's really, I think Brad, you did an excellent job like summing it all up, but really when it, when it gets right down to it, it's tough to describe how funny it is to someone. You just have to watch it. And I, I would recommend this to literally anyone because it is so, so funny. I mean, it's again, it's like comedy is like this elusive thing, but for me anyway, and, and my wife and probably everyone that, that, you know, is in my friend group or has anywhere close to my sense of humor, um, this is going to be, you know, like one of the best things that Netflix produces this year, I think. And one of the things I, I
3: love about their dynamic too is every now and then they'll kind of break the fourth wall and like uh, break character because they're trying to keep track of the characters because for a second they forget names. They're like, no, wait a minute, who's who's over here? And it's just funny because – it feels so seamless, and you're laughing at them trying to trying to figure it out before they get back on track. And it's uh, you don't often see that. They usually in improv they they kind of stay in the bit, and you see them laugh to themselves every now and then when they get caught off guard by something funny. But they just have such this there's just a cool way of playing off each other that it doesn't even feel like the show is being ruined by it. It only enhances it.
1: You know, I I'm a person, uh, Brad. You often call me a, a comedy curmudgeon. But I I used to go to UCB theater a lot here because I, while I don't love improv, like when you are in a room watching improv, it is hilarious. It's hard to capture on the screen, I found. It's it's kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like magic in that like magic works when you're watching a magician perform. It works better when you're seeing them live than it does on the screen for various reasons. Um, So I'm excited to see this because I'm a big fan of Schwartz and uh but i i often find like i i was never a fan of uh, that drew Carey show what was it um who's lying anyway right. yeah, yeah. That,
3: that's 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 completely different cuz it's that's a lot more cheesy and it was made for yeah. network tv so it was safer and they played short form games which can be fun but this this is just it's a different kind of improv and like it's 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 a lot more engaging comedically i think
1: yeah well i'll have to check it out uh jacob what have you been watching this week well, I'll watch something with Brad and Ben. and By with,
2: I mean we both all watch the same thing in our different homes. Um, that's the first few episodes of The Last Dance, the new ESPN miniseries about the final year of the Chicago Bulls' the dream team of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, that whole lineup, Coach Phil Jackson. And uh, basketball is probably my favorite sport. I, I actually watch it, but I didn't become a basketball fan until I moved to San Antonio in the late 90s and started following the Spurs. So even though I was entirely aware of Michael Jordan and the Bulls in the 90s, even though I was a kid, like how could I not be? I was not, you know, aware of all the nooks and crannies and details. So a lot of the stuff is new to me, uh, and I'm finding it completely fascinating. The first two episodes are on ESPN. I'm watching them on ESPN Plus, uh, and it's just the comprehensive breakdown of Michael Jordan and the Bulls team surrounding him. It flashes back uh, between the. Early years of Jordan joining the team and the the last dance, aka that the final year of the dream team being together, going for their last championship, and I'm just and, and being able to have the the curtain pulled back from Michael Jordan, cultural icon, to see all this really amazing footage shot in the '90s but not seen until now of the team at work, uh, of them of of the tensions between uh, management and players and. I'm finding it all incredibly thrilling. I don't think you need to be a basketball fan to enjoy this, but uh, Ben, you're a, you're a bit older than me, so I'm, I'm, I bet you have a bit more of a
0: perspective on the 90s than I do uh slightly but i you know a lot of the as you were mentioning the nooks and crannies are sort of new to me too like the second episode goes into scotty pippen and his contract negotiations and stuff like that and i you know i was i was still a kid in the 90s so i of course knew about jordan as a global phenomenon but i i was not paying attention to basketball on that level where i knew the ins and outs and behind the scenes of like what exactly was going on with the business side of the team so all the stuff about um, Pippen, who was one of the best players in the league at that time, signing this contract and and being you know wildly undervalued as a player, but sort of being screwed over because he signed an early contract and all of this kind of stuff that fills out um, you know the the second episode of the of the Last Dance was really new to me. Even though I think the first episode is is pretty much like a general sort of recap of like. Here's who Michael Jordan is, and and I feel like I knew a lot of that stuff, and I feel like anybody who really paid attention to, uh, you know, sports in the '90s, that stuff is not going to be super new. But I think as the series goes on, I hope that it, it sort of continues to drill down deeper and deeper, and and reveal stuff that we've not seen. Like you mentioned, they they shot a ton of this footage in, you know, they had like unprecedented access to the team, and and uh, not only on the court but behind the scenes stuff and and all of that. In the 90s. And my understanding is the uh, ESPN, you know, and this film crew made this agreement to like, okay, well, and, and the team themselves made this agreement that like, okay, we'll film all this stuff, but we won't release it until you're ready for it to be released. And now Michael Jordan has said, okay, I'm ready for this to, to be released. So that's the reason that we're seeing it now. Um, so, uh, Brad, I know you watch this too. What'd you think about it?
3: Yeah, I love this documentary series so far. Um, as a kid of the nineties living here in the Midwest and hour outside of Chicago, the bulls were my team. And the nineties was the time when I was the most, uh, into any kind of sports, but specifically basketball, uh, and the NBA, I still have all of my basketball cards from when I was a kid, uh, in a binder. I can tell you so many players from the starting lineups of the entire NBA team rosters from those years. And uh, I was obsessed with the bulls, you know, um, I love the team, you know, Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, Steve Kerr, Luke Longley, Tony Kukoc, all these people. And, um, I like, you guys, I, I, because I was young, I wasn't necessarily ingrained in, like, the business side of things. So I didn't, you know, know what was going on with Scottie Pippen. So it's cool to hear about these extra details and understand them as an adult. I, I do remember being annoyed uh, when Pippen was recovering from an injury and every time there was a game. And I would be like, where's Scottie Pippen? What, what's going on? And so, like, just... Finding out all these details is really cool. Um, seeing jo- game footage of Jordan again, man, the, the guy was just a, a beast. Like seeing him move so, uh, just with so much ease and just effortlessly flying through the air, like ha- literally hanging in the air for what feels like you know a full minute before he reaches the basket. Uh, there's just so much cool footage here. I, I love that they shot all this stuff. It gives you such an an in depth glimpse behind the scenes of just not, not just you know the Bulls playing, but the organization at large and provides all this, you know, interesting context for, you know, pop culture and just the business of basketball. And it's, I love that it's also a warts and all kind of depiction too. You you see Michael Jordan being kind of a dick, you know, to players because (laughs) he wanted to win so badly. And, you know, he, he sometimes you see him yelling at Ron Harper and getting pissed off if everyone's not giving their, their all. And it's just, it's fascinating. And I I can't wait to watch the rest of it. Yeah. The Michael Jordan talking heads are fascinating because you,
2: jordan famously doesn't do a ton of interviews so seeing him being candid on camera is fascinating for one and two the fact that his perspective is one that uh there are times where i'm like like really michael jordan like when he when he calls uh scotty pippen selfish uh for, for demanding he be paid what he's worth you're like michael jordan you're making pay 36 million dollars a year <laughs> shut up and, it, and uh, just like the fact that you know michael jordan's on camera being honest even when i'm like thinking he's completely wrong the fact that it's there and it exists is invaluable as a not just as a sports thing but as like a pop culture thing
1: where can people watch the last dance
2: uh, if you have ESPN Plus, it is streaming there. Otherwise, it's uh, pretty much all ESPN has right now. Since sports are canceled because of the <laughs> pandemic, so it's playing a lot on the regular network. I do recommend. Um, there are two versions. The ESPN version is TVMA and has uh, all the harsh language unedited, and ESPN Two is TV14 with the uh, f bombs all bleeped out. And it doesn't make a huge difference, but you know, if you if you want the full unedited version, the TVMA one is the one to go
3: with. And if you and, if uh... you've got. It- if you have a cable subscription, there's a—it's a new episode every Sunday through like the middle of May or something like that.
0: Yeah, and they're going to be re-airing a lot of the episodes. So if you miss the first two, uh, they're going to replay those two before this Sunday's new episodes. So that's the probably the easiest way to watch it if you don't have ESPN Plus.
1: Okay. I th- think
3: right now too, actually, if you download uh, the ESPN app, I think the first two episodes are free, regardless of whether or not you have ESPN Plus or a cable subscription.
1: Oh, cool. I'm interested to hear about this next film because I know it's written by Joe Russo. I wanted to see this. This is on Netflix. Uh, it's dre- the directorial debut of a guy that Sam Hargrove Grave. He was a fight choreographer and stunt coordinator on like the Avengers films, Deadpool two, uh, Atomic Bond, a, a lot of big movies. And this is like f- his feature debut. And two two of you guys saw this. Uh, Chris, what did you think of Extraction?
5: Oh, it sucks. It's so bad. Uh. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, I mean, look, it's, it's got okay action. There's, there's like a lengthy scene that's designed to look like it's one shot and it keeps jumping in and out of cars and into buildings. And you know, that's kind of cool looking, but there's, there's nothing going on in this movie. And the whole thing has this like hideous yellow tint over it. that just makes the movie look like sickly for no reason and chris hemsworth is just this like monotone lunkhead i don't know i like i i felt like after like thor ragnarok and you know the the later avengers films and you know like the the Ghostbusters movie people were realizing that chris hemsworth is better as like a, a, a guy with a sense of humor rather than like a tough guy and this movie like totally ignores that and turns him into like you know the mumbly tough guy who's like haunted by his past and he's always like popping pills. It's just so generic and I I don't know. I really didn't care for it. I mean, like it's a good like background movie, I guess you want to put it on and like do some laundry, I guess it's fine. But if there's, you know, there's nothing
0: worth recommending here in my opinion.
1: Ben, what did you think?
0: So I liked it a little bit more than Chris, but I I definitely agree that there's, you know, it has nothing to say about anything. And it, it is very weird to watch the very white Chris Hemsworth wander through you know, India and wh- wherever, forget the the cities that he's supposed to be in. Dhaka, I think, is one of them. Um, w- anyway, wander through a sea of brown people and just be gunning people down left and right. It, the, the optics of this movie are a little yeah. weird, and the, the film is not interested in the least at interrogating that at all. So it, it's sort of just strange to see it from that angle, but I am a sucker for a good... Uh, action scene and this movie has several well choreographed action scenes and Peter you mentioned it comes from a guy who you know does action choreography and sunk choreography and stuff like that And you can definitely tell especially in that long sequence that Chris is talking about which is very impressive but I, I came away from it being like wow they really put a ton of work into that but I just don't really know that it added much to this movie other than you know, adding this sort of asterisk and and making sure that this movie will now forever be mentioned on lists of, you know, impressive long takes, but like (laughs) within the story that it's telling, I I don't really know if it adds up to much, but um, there is some good action here. So if you're looking for just, you know, completely mindless action, uh, that's what Extraction is good for and really nothing else.
1: Yeah, I was a little bit worried about that because it's based on a graphic novel and it's joe russo's first screenwriting credit since 2002's welcome to collin hood so um so and lo- what's what's, re- what's really like annoying
5: is like to, to go back to the optics thing is like there's actually i forget the actor's name i have in front of me but he's like a bollywood star and he's in this movie too as sort of like the secondary hero like he's all the movie's about chris Hemsworth trying to rescue this kidnapped kid and this other guy is also trying to rescue him and you get the sense that like if this movie were braver, it would have just had that other guy as the main character and left Chris Hemsworth out of it entirely, but they needed him in it. Like they needed that star power. And it's just like, it's really distracting because that other guy, he actually seems more interesting than Chris Hemsworth's character. And like, I'd rather spend more time with him than Chris Hemsworth and his, his, his sad mopey face.
0: Yeah. Fully agree. His character is way more sympathetic and he has, a family and is sort of being forced into this situation whereas Hemsworth just sort of like shrugs his shoulders and is like yeah I guess I'll do this mission <laughs> but like the other guy's motivation is so much more um compelling so yeah I, I fully agree with that Chris
1: I guess I'm gonna still have to watch this for that for that for at least that one shot action sequence because I'm a fan of one shot action sequences so maybe I'll fast forward through the movie and get to that point I'll have to find the time code <laughs> Um, Okay, let's talk about uh, or let me talk about what I have been watching. Uh, I feel like a month ago, I mentioned that I watched this show on from Amazon. It's called Upload. I wasn't allowed to talk about it at the time because there was an embargo. This does come out on May first, And uh, it is directed by Jeffrey Blitz, who I love. He did the documentary Spellbound, which is incredible. He did the movie Rocket Science, which I think kind of like was like the launching point of Anna Kendrick. Uh is a great film I saw at Sundance. And he he's also directed a lot of episodes of The Office. But more importantly, this is the created by Greg Daniels. Uh this guy has a pedigree. Uh you know, he created The Office. He created Parks and Rec. He created King of the Kill. And this is a single camera, R-rated, uh serialized show. So it's it's different than what he is traditionally Doing and um, it is it's set in a future where technology allows anyone to upload their entire consciousness at the time of their death into a computer, and basically people can live together in these digital communities for the rest of time. So it's it's kind of transcendent in that in, in that idea. Uh, it's. People can interact in this living. uh, Well, I'm I'm trying to think of a way to to explain this. Okay, so while you're in this digital community, people on the outside world like your living friends and family can still interact with you through VR and phone calls. And eventually someday they'll be possibly reunited with you in this digital world when they also die. Um, This show follows like this young app developer who is in this shallow relationship with this rich uh, woman who is kind of ditzy and stuff. Uh, he has this freak self-driving car accident and it's uploaded to her family's luxurious uh, afterlife resort. And he does what the the core of the sto- story is he develops this relationship with his angel is what an angel is, is your virtual customer service representative who is controlled by like a, you know, a person who's alive living in New York um, who can kind of appear to him inside the digital world. I, I know this sounds like a lot. It sounds very convoluted. Um, it the show kind of deals with the loss of privacy and overcapitalism. Um, because basically, you know, living humans are now turned into like digital files that can continue making purchases long after their death. So it it, it, it deals with some interesting ideas there. It I think it wants to be uh, the good place meets San Gi- Junipero, um, but it's not quite as good as either of those things. Um, that said, I really enjoyed it. I binge watch me and Kitcher binge watched the entire first season in like one day. Uh, it's charming. It's funny. Not laugh out loud funny. Uh, the story can be a little cliche at times, but I think what really intrigues me about the show is the world building and the idea of like the sci-fi future where there's these digital afterlifes and how they interact with the the real world and uh, how it plays with all those things is kind of clever. So I, I would highly recommend this. I don't think this is going to be like it's not it's it's not a home run for everybody but uh I I don't know i I really like the idea of you know a person being uploaded into their digital heaven it, it, it's kind of a, a a cool concept and they'll be on Amazon on May 1st um oh and there's also like there's this whole mystery subplot to it which I think is not as good as what 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 is going on here but anyways um I also watched uh, a few weeks ago on The Water Cooler. I mentioned I watched the the Netflix TV show Love is Blind. This was like one of those hot like pop culture, you know, everybody was talking about it at their The Water Cooler online. Uh, I, I don't tend to watch dating reality shows, um, although I think I probably do watch more reality television than anybody else in this podcast. Um, but I do. I find dating reality shows to be uh, just not my thing. Um, but love is blind was, was so interesting and funny, even though it was trashy and bad that I had to try too hot to handle. This is their new dating reality show. And this is a show where they have gathered a bunch of people on this tropical, um, retreat. And it's all these people who were hot and And uh, they're all good looking uh, men and women, and they bring them together onto this retreat. And they and these people are all people who are sexaholics. They you know, they they don't really have long term relationships. They are out every night, you know, with one night flings and stuff, I guess. Um, and uh they bring them to this retreat and the premise is after they are there for the day and they've developed relationships with each other or developed like you know started to develop relationships with each other they are told the host of the show by the way is this is so horrible is like an Amazon echo style device that is like in every room and talks to them and they're told by this this device this computer device that, The show is actually not what they thought it was, that it will have a hundred thousand dollar prize to each person. Um, But for the next 30 days where they're living at this tropical paradise resort, they are not allowed to have any physical relationships with each other or themselves. So that means no heavy petting. That means no kissing, no sex, no masturbation (laughs) Um, and it's, uh, I don't know, The show is bad. It's just bad, bad. It's not even enjoyable bad. We watched a couple episodes and gave up on it. It's, I, I think what makes this bad, I, I like the idea of doing these like experiments with people and watching them play out. But the problem here is that for this to work, you need to find the most stupid and superficial people on the planet to go here. And none of them are really that interesting. And uh, at times – and there's, just like, this this uh, woman who does a voiceover over this whole thing that is, like, making jokes at their expense, but it really – I don't know. It just – the whole thing is very cringy and bad. Uh, it almost at times feels like a parody of a reality show. I almost feel like – like, in the first episode, I I was feeling – that maybe oh maybe this isn't a reality show maybe this is the idea is that it's pitched as a reality show and it's, it's actually you know a parody of a reality show but no that's not what it is it's it's not good I would not recommend too hot to handle um, on Netflix so there you go um, I also have caught up on season seven of the Clone Wars this is the last. Final season of Star Wars Clone Wars. This is on Disney Plus. I've never been a huge fan of the Clone Wars. I know there's like some Clone Wars diehards out there. Um, A lot of people that love Star Wars love the Clone Wars. I watched the first two seasons, really couldn't get into it. I watched uh the animated movie I did love Star Wars Rebels and I know that's also made by Dave Filoni and uh I fell in love with that so I wanted to give this uh, final season of the Clone Wars a chance and um I'll say the first few episodes are are fine they're okay it's like animated television um it it's interesting they 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 do it almost feels like they they wrote and produce some of these episodes before it got canceled. Um, and there's some interesting things like it, it, they go to uh, 1313. That's the level of Coruscant that they're originally making a video game based on it. So there's some stuff set there that's interesting. But I, what I really want to talk to is the last two episodes were like this two-parter episode uh, focusing on Ahsoka. And, uh, Darth Maul is a part of it. And this is, these two episodes were so good. These, um, it feels more like a animated star Wars movie. It feels like it's star Wars episode 2.5. And I'm not even a person that loves the prequels, but it, 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 it it feels, it, it changes canon in interesting ways. It has one of the best lightsaber battles in the history of the franchise. Ray Park uh, reprises his role as Darth Maul in a performance capture to create that lightsaber battle. Um, but there's some really emotional stuff here, even for someone who wasn't a diehard Clone Wars person. Um, I don't know. I really, really have enjoyed the last two episodes, and I'm I'm in for the the, the last few. So if you aren't into Clone Wars um, you know, maybe check this out because it's uh, I, I highly recommend it. It was some really, really great Star Wars television. I, I, I think I would honestly say that uh, the, the, the past two episodes were better than all of the Mandalorian. So go, go there. Um, what else have I been watching? I last night or yesterday we were looking for something to watch and we came across this show on Netflix. It's called The Outer Banks. And the premise of the show is basically the Goonies by way of the OC. So if you like both of those things, maybe you'll like the show. It it is directed and produced by Jonas Pate, who did episodes of Friday night lights. He directed episodes of Battlestar Galactica. Um, It's about these group of, of teenagers. I think they're like 16, 17 and they live in this, um, I think it's shot in North Carolina or South Carolina, but they live in this seaside coastal town, which kind of has, you know, some rich people that come there for, you know, that that live there. There's, there's, it, it, it's, I guess, kind of like Ozark in a way, like the Ozarks where people come there for tourism, but there's also the people that live in this town that are the poor people. So it has a mix of, you know, the people that are going there for their vacation, the rich people and also the very poor people. And it, it follows this one guy who his father, there's this whole mystery where his father has gone missing and he was searching for this long lost ship that had this, uh, ancient, uh, English gold, uh, millions and dollars of gold. And he went missing. And this story kind of follows, uh, these kids, uh, coming together to try to find the ship and find the gold. And also this is all taking place during, um, in the aftermath of a massive hurricane, which has kind of like destroyed this small coastal town. This show, I would say if you have like watched scandal or the OC or, um, Shows like that, I guess it's kind of like in that vein. I, I didn't get to watch Riverdale, but I'm guessing it's like Riverdale, but maybe not as uh, the, the characters aren't as good. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it. We're five episodes in. Uh, I It's not great television, but if you like... If you like, you know the C. If you like CW shows, if you like uh, the OC, if if you like a good like teenage, you know where there's a love triangle and these kids, you know, having feuds with each other. Um, th- th- this is a a decent one. Um, Outer Banks, and that is on Netflix right now. And uh, lastly, I know I've been talking for a long time here. I finished uh, Devs. I talked about that on a podcast with press earlier this week so you can go listen to that but I really enjoyed it I think it's brilliant despite uh, the the overall story feels like there's some it doesn't come quite together as much as like the ideas and uh, the execution and the cinematography and the vision and the tone. Um, I highly recommend Devs to anybody. Like if you're not watching Devs, you know, put that onto your at the top of your watch list right now. And I also finished Bosch on the latest season of Bosch on amazon and it did come together in a better way than i was expecting i'm still in on the show i I, I like Bosch. i don't think it's as as strong as it was in its early seasons because it's become more um serialized throughout the different seasons and having these overlapping plots some of which have like b and c storylines that i don't care about but I, i i i still like Bosch. so there you have it uh chris what have you been watching
5: uh, I finally got around to watching The Way Back, which is the the sad Ben Affleck basketball movie that was briefly out in theaters, and then everything went horribly wrong, and then it got pushed to uh, VOD. And I really, really liked this movie. Uh, I know, like a lot of people were acting like it was going to be like a, a total like dad movie, and maybe it is, but it's and it, admittedly, it is very predictable. Like you know where it's going, you know you know, where the plot is going, where, you know, Ben Affleck is this uh, alcoholic uh, who gets brought in to, to coach a basketball team of, of youths, and you know they're going to eventually get better at the game, and you know he's going to eventually get better, and, you know, you know exactly where this story is going, but it's so well done, and Ben Affleck is really good in this movie. I feel like he's one of those actors who does not get enough credit. Like, I don't know if I'd call him, like, a great actor, but... He's really good at the things he does, and he's he's very good in this. And I'm sure he was drawing on a lot of like personal stuff because you know he's been open about his his problems with alcoholism. And it's just a very good movie. It, it's a it's a solid little film. And uh, you know Hollywood doesn't really put out movies like this that that often anymore. Like these these mid budget movies that aren't about like greater big things like this really is like a small intimate film that just happens to have ben affleck in it and uh, you know i i really appreciated it so if you out there haven't gotten around to watching the way back on vod i i highly recommend
1: it chris if no other films are released this year because of the coronavirus will this film get any nominations at at theoretical Uh, oscars
5: I guess like this and Bad Boys for Life will both be nominated <laughs> for Best Picture
4: and you Trolls. Know, I, I wouldn't be mad if Ben Affleck got like a Best Actor nomination for this role because he is really good. And yeah, he actually, I actually want to throw in my support for this movie because it's it's a great little mid-budget movie that reminds me of when mid-budget movies were just at their prime and, uh, you know, delivering great character work without, you know, like like you said, not trying to be any about anything.
5: Yeah, like even if like things like this weren't going on where there are no new movies and stuff like that, I still think Affleck kinda does deserve to get like award recognition at the end of the year because he's he's really good in this movie. Yeah.
1: I like him as an actor. I like him as a director. I just wish he would separate those two things because I feel like when he tries to direct himself, he's like doing too much at once. But uh yeah. Okay. Uh Brad, what have you been watching?
3: What else have I been watching? That's a good question. Um, I watched uh, Binged, I guess, the first two seasons of Barry, the HBO series starring Bill Hader. Um, I just, I, I wasn't avoiding the show necessarily. I just kept putting it off, and because I've been terrible about watching certain TV shows. But now I have all the time in the world, so I sat down last weekend uh, and pushed through the first two seasons in two days. Uh, it's a real breezy watch because they're only half-hour episodes, and there's eight episodes each season. And I think this is one of my new favorite shows. Uh, not only is it really funny, but it's got such great writing. Bill Hader is outstanding in this role. It's, I'm ever watching him in this, I am mystified as to why he's not a bigger movie star. Because I feel like he, he almost has kind of a a classic actor kind of vibe. like Almost like a, a Jimmy Stewart, uh, in a way, I was reminded of. Um, but but everybody is great in the show. Uh, Anthony Kerrigan plays uh, this character named NoHo Hank, who is like one of the best, most original characters I've seen on a TV show in a long time. Uh, he's really really funny. Um, he can be menacing sometimes when he needs to be, but most of the time he's just this kind of chipper, nonchalant uh, kind of you know uh, mobster, and he's he's just so good in in the role. Uh, Steven Root, Henry Winkler. Um, All these people are just are awesome in this show. And I was the twists and turns are fantastic. And I found myself realizing that Barry is a lot like uh, Dexter, but it's not as melodramatic and it's infinitely funnier. Um, So it's uh, if you're looking for something to watch, that's that's quick and will definitely entertain you. I I can't implore you enough to go out of your way to watch uh, Barry on HBO. And a lot of you guys have been raving about this show for a long time. So I'm so glad I'm finally in the know.
1: Cool. Uh, what else have you been watching?
3: <clears throat> um, so, just by happenstance, I, there's been a lot of discussion online recently about the uh, editing that Disney Plus made to Splash by attempting to cover up Daryl Hannah's butt a little bit more with some digital hair enhancement in this movie. Um, and so my girlfriend and one of her friends wanted to watch this movie uh, remotely. I had never seen it before, and neither had my girlfriend, and it was her, one of her friend's favorite movies growing up as a kid. So we watched it, and uh, man, first of all, Tom Hanks, he's always been great. He's great here, and somehow he makes you buy into this weird fantasy love story that is surprisingly horny. Uh, this is a very horny family movie. Like, almost immediately, when Daryl Hannah sees Tom Hanks, she is all about making out with him, and, like, they hook up in the elevator really quickly once she gets on land, and, like, there's, like, it's obviously it's all off-screen sex but they are clearly having lots of sex in this movie um and it's just i don't know i i didn't dislike it i understand why there's you know this sort of reverence for and and love for it but it's a really weird movie like i I don't understand why she just doesn't tell tom hanks that she's a mermaid and like why she's only around for a little while because they it would have just been so much easier to enjoy time with each other instead of making this drama especially since He ends up going off with her anyway. Um, Yeah, I don't know. And then, like, uh, one thing I noticed, and I I posted this on Twitter, is like, Disney was so concerned about the brief nudity, uh, like covering Daryl Hannah's butt in this movie, that they didn't even notice other inappropriate things. Like, there's a full-on ceramic boob mug that is sitting on John Candy's desk uh, in this movie, and they didn't try to blur it or cover it up or or anything. It's just right there, a boob. (laughs) in this and that's a mug it's just right there um but it's you know it's it's a fun movie uh like I said I understand why people liked it growing up but real weird real weird movie have any of you guys seen splash recently
1: I haven't seen it recently but I'm kind of surprised that they went through all the effort of adding that cg hair in because it seems like it would be just much easier to crop it right
3: I'm well it's tough for that particular shot it would be hard to crop it without I think losing Tom Hanks in the shot because it's a shot where they kiss and then she just runs into the water suddenly, um, but there are other shots that they did like crop or just uh, I guess remove completely when like she's naked and walking on uh, on Ellis Island to the Statue of Liberty. So they made little changes like that here and there.
4: It's funny. I watched uh, Ten Things I Hate About You recently on Disney Plus, and uh, none of the cursing or the various uh, drawings of boobs and penises were censored at all in this movie. And it, it feels really just funny that Splash was censored just for a butt that was barely seen in the original movie as it was. Um, and uh, things like I think they they say the the F word. I think they say fuck in, in Ten Things I Hate About it, You. It yeah, she, at least they say like
1: they, they don't care about adult language they care about nudity
3: yeah sex hurts All the right. children in hd <laughs> um i also watched uh the gentleman guy ritchie's uh crime action comedy if you will with Matthew, McCona- Matthew mcconaughey hugh grant charlie hunnam michelle dockery and uh it's pretty good it's uh not one of guy ritchie's best of this kind of genre that he's usually so good at uh everyone is fantastic in their in their roles uh they do, everyone does a really good job. Hugh Grant, especially having uh, the time of his life. Michelle, uh, Michelle McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey is great. Michelle Dockery. It's cool to see her put on a Cockney accent and not be, you know, this prim sort of uh, woman that she is in *Downton Abbey*. Uh, Henry Golding. It's really cool to see him be this uh, threatening mobster kind of guy too. Would love to see him do more roles like this. But it's just, it's kind of just a, a, a straight line all the way through. There's not a lot of like, you know, peaks when it comes to. Cool action sequence. There's one one cool bit where there's this like um, team of criminals who like breaks into Matthew McConaughey's uh, one of his weed storages, and they're they do this thing where it's it's called fight porn. They call it where they basically make a music video at the place that they've just robbed after like kicking the asses of the people who work there, and it's pretty funny. And like it's like the mu- the video they made to go with it is it's like it has a catchy like hip hop uh, beat to it, but um although uh, besides the performances it's not like the most exciting movie there it has good moments and there's a surprising amount of like meta storytelling to it because hugh grant plays this guy who i don't know if he's actually like a producer or if he's just like somebody who's really ingrained and like loves movies but he presents the story of what happened to like his boss and like all these double crosses and how he, uh, and what he's trying to do to charlie hunnam's boss who's matthew mcconaughey he does it through by the way of this script that he wrote that recounts everything that happens. And he's talking to Charlie Hunnam about it and breaking down things that he, he doesn't know or that he was a part of. And it's, it's a really weird framing of it. It's, it's almost kind of like in the same way where Harley Quinn's telling the story of birds of prey. And at times it's kind of disjointed and chaotic, but it doesn't really add much to the proceedings. Um, but like I said, performances are, are solid. It's, you know, it, it's a, a fine way to pass the time if you're just looking for something to watch, I suppose. Uh, I also watched a, a documentary called This Is Stand-Up, which aired on Comedy Central. And there, there are tons of documentaries out there about the art of stand-up comedy, and I don't ever get sick of watching any of them. Uh, some of are better produced than others. This one is a little bit more uh, slick and candid. It uh, has interviews with a lot of really big uh, comedy names like Seinfeld and Sarah Silverman and... Uh, Gary Shandling before he had passed away just about the art of stand up and what I like about this one is it kind of breaks down like the key things that are important in stand up like finding your voice and just how much effort goes into being on stage every day as much as you can all the time and how you you know you have to bomb in order to get better and if you're not bombing you're uh you're either doing something very right but you're probably not as good as you think you are because you're you know it's it's if it's too easy then it's probably you're being a little bit lazy about it and uh, it really digs into a lot of uh, interesting facets of stand-up comedy and it, the way the comedians talk about them while also following some kind of middle known names uh, like Taylor Tomlinson and Burt Kreischer and like, their personal life and how uh, they tour and, and all that and so it's if you're a big stand-up comedy fan it's definitely worth watching just for the uh, all the extra insight from these comedians and then uh, I rewatched a few things just real quickly uh Shazam has been on HBO and I've tossed it on in the background a couple times and uh the more I've seen of it the more I just realize how much I really do love this movie and I wish people wouldn't have slept on it so much because it's such a fun superhero romp that it has this uh a darker scary kind of side when it comes to like the monsters and uh the the villain that Mark Strong plays and some edgier questionably uh inappropriate comedy that doesn't really work for kids but it, because of that it feels like the kind of movie that kids would have loved growing up with in the 80s and the 90s and i think it's so good zachary levi is great in this movie the kids are fantastic and i just um it, it's not like it was a bomb or anything like that but i feel like it's not nearly as appreciated as it should be cool uh, and then i also watched Coneheads, which is just a fun thing to watch because it has like almost everybody from saturday night live in it and i just enjoy watching it it's it's comfort food for me and it was on sale recently on iTunes and then on a lesser note I tossed on The Green Hornet on Netflix and it's uh, why why I, I hadn't seen it since I saw it in theaters and I knew that it was not going to be good but I just wanted to, to like kind of have it fresher in my memory and there, there's some interesting style choices in here from Michelle Gondry but like it just doesn't really make much Oh,
4: wow I forgotten sense. that Michelle Gondry had directed this movie <laughs>
3: it, just, it just doesn't make much sense as far as the the plot and like how they use Green Hornet and yeah it is just it's
1: weird <laughs> um, and, and, and it has Tekwatiti in it right does it that's Green Lantern, no,
3: Green Lantern. Green Lantern. oh wait that's
1: Green Lantern oh I'm I'm confusing the greens this is
3: yeah this is Green Hornet with Seth Rogen yeah 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 yeah
1: um, I'm but, yeah, sorry two pe- two very forgettable superhero movies yeah it's,
3: uh, it's weird some people I forgot that were in Green Hornet James Franco. Uh, and Edward Furlong and David Harbour, so there you go.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, was that the last thing you watched? Yeah. Okay. That, ja- yeah, that's it. Jacob, what have you been watching?
2: Uh, my final New Girl update. I finished New Girl, uh, which is streaming on Netflix. Ends uh, strong. I do think that, like a lot of sitcoms, it has its ups and downs. I think season six is probably the weakest, uh, and that's why they clearly wanted to end it after that. After that, with season seven. Uh, but yeah, as as a uh, show about that begins with people confused in their mid in their early 30s and ends with them, you know, finding their way in their late 30s. You know, it's one of those, and it does it very very well. And I'm, uh, I was satisfied throughout, and I laughed a lot. Uh, I don't think I agree with. I remember when we um, did our best TV of the decade argument. Ht fought for this to be on the uh, on the list, or at least she put in her two cents for it. I still don't think I would have agreed with her for the best of the decade, uh, but I do think it's an exceptionally good sitcom, and it's very, very funny, uh, if a little bit inconsistent. So uh, it's New Girl, all streaming on Netflix right now. Uh, if you're looking for a good binge-worthy show, uh, it's very easy to watch. Uh, even the bad stuff is good. I mean, when I say bad, it's all relative. It's all funny all the way through. I, I, I agree. Uh, it's no
1: pen & Teller Fooless. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. Uh, moving on. I uh, rewatched *Knives Out*. I uh, the, the 4K Blu-ray. That movie we can talk about it enough on this podcast, but it, it's pretty much perfect. I've seen it three or four times now. Each time, I appreciate it a little bit more. It's just an immaculately made movie. Everything about it works, and and. It, even once you know the ending and the you know who done it, uh, it still holds up. It can appreciate the construction, the performances, and the detail. Uh, I'm eager to see Ryan Johnson return to this world with the next uh, Benoit Blanc mystery uh, at some point in the future. Uh, after watching um, the Michael Jordan doc series, uh, my wife and I started diving into some 30 for 30s, the long-running HBO uh, HBO documentary. Uh, not, not, sorry, HBO, ESPN documentary ser- series where they have uh, feature-length, Docs about a variety of all kinds of different subjects uh, We watched Jordan rides a bus which I'd seen previously, which is about Michael Jordan's uh, Very brief baseball career when he retired from basketball following the death of his father to pursue a uh, year in the minor league baseball uh, as sort of a therapy slash tribute to his uh, Father who was always a big baseball fan and it's a, it's one of those cases where the information is very good it has a very good perspective on trying to explore who Michael Jordan was at this point and why he went to baseball and why people got the story about it wrong at the time. But it's also just not particularly filmically interesting. It is very cut and paste. Uh, it doesn't really have a rhythm or a tone to it. It's just, it, Compared to a lot of 30 for 30 docs, which are very cinematic and really well made and paced like actual movies, this feels very made for TV. Uh, but if you're a Michael Jordan fan or want to know more about him... Uh, in between episodes of the new series. Um, Jordan Rides the Bus is streaming on ESPN+, Plus, and it's 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 good. Uh, but after that, I went back to one of my all-time favorite 30 for 30s, and that is Catching Hell, which is directed by Alex Gibney, the prolific documentary filmmaker behind many, many documentary films. And this one, uh, compared to Jordan Rides the Bus, has so much personality. It's so cinematic. It's so well-made. It has an incredible pace to it. And it is on the surface about the infamous 2003 Chicago Cubs baseball game, or a fan caught what looked like a foul ball, but um, many argue was still in play, and kept a uh, a player from catching it and having an important play go through. And it and it caused, and essentially, the entire game to get derailed and caused the entire stadium to essentially go into uh, riot mode. And it's this really fascinating look at this really bad, bad night, uh, but also ends up being about uh, mysticism and uh, how we put faith, in uh in in sports and all all kinds of supernatural uh hoodoo <laughs> surrounding baseball and how we search for scapegoats to uh make ourselves feel better I'm, I'm really curious has anyone else here seen catching hell because i think it's genuinely one of the most impressive sports talks
0: i've ever seen i have not but it sounds really interesting yeah it, yeah that really,
3: sounds yeah. like one i would want to watch i don't i'm not i as much as i don't like sports i I, I've been wanting to go out of my way recently to watch uh, a lot more of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries because they all seem like they're fascinating and uh, I just I like sports under the lens of documentaries even though I don't pay attention to them normally
2: yeah you and me both Brad uh, like, so I, I casually watch some sports but I don't really follow it but put me in front of a good sports doc and I'm completely hooked and uh, I think the 30 for 30 channel on ESPN plus is a uh, really amazing place to go to find really incredible sports stories I uh, in fact my next quarantine stream article our ongoing series on um, on slash.com will be about 30 for 30 and I'll be highlighting a few of my favorites there uh, but moving on uh, we continue my uh, horror movie nights with my wife we're drinking more than ever and watching horror movies what else are we supposed to do uh, I watched the night sitter Chris have you seen the Night sitter?
5: no I have not seen this actually
2: this is streaming on Amazon. It is. What if I t- pitched you this as a low-budget um, Dario Argento movie that had a Sam Raimi movie inside of it? Uh, I mean, that, that's, that does sound interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's very much uh, shot like a, like an old-school Dario Argento movie from the '70s. It has these wild color schemes uh, where scenes are entirely red or entirely green. And it's actually really fun because the movie's set at Christmas, so it has a whole Christmas horror level to it. Uh, so originally, this, 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 there are so many scenes lit by Christmas lights. That you don't notice the transition from like realistic Christmas lighting to like completely gonzo 1970s Italian filmmaker lighting. It just happens so slowly, you know. You, you don't notice that It goes from Christmas to Dario Argento kind of seamlessly. Uh, but the movie itself is a babysitter who's actually a a burglar uh, is watching over a, a kid in a house owned by a paranormal investigator. They uh, unlock a book that uh Resurrects 3 uh witches, things go horribly wrong. Uh heads are smashed, and trails everywhere, fingers are bitten off. It's very gooey, very gory, and very funny and surprisingly well made. It's low budget. It's not like it's not amazing. But it's one of the cases where you watch and you go, Oh, this is a really interesting thing. This is not a lazily made thing. This is made by people who are passionate about the genre and are actively quoting, you know, Evil Dead Two and um and Suspiria in ways that are Actually, really fun and clever. So that's uh, The Night Sitter, currently streaming on Amazon. Also on Amazon, a uh, movie called Don't Run. I cannot recommend it. It is a $40,000 movie made by a firefighter who wanted to try and Hand filmmaking. And according to the internet, uh, Gut the House of the Film takes place by agreeing to move the owner's furniture for her. Uh, it's, it's that kind of low-budget production, so you kind of wish it could be good. You kind of wish that there would be something here.
1: Wait, how did you, you find pro- this?
2: It was an IMDb trivia written by the by the director clearly. No, I'll, I mean, IMDb how did IMDb you trivia? find the movie? Oh, oh, it was I was drunk and I had a good uh, log line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the log line's really good. It is um, a kid learns there's a monster in his closet, and if he does not, if he's not in bed before sundown, the monster will kill him every night, no matter what. And uh there's some really generally clever ideas to that concept. Cause it's it's the movie generally says, okay, what if? How would that sustain itself for six months, for a year, of this kid trying to survive in a world where there's a monster in his closet and he has to be in bed no matter what? No matter what obligations are in his life, uh, he has to be in that bedroom um, under his covers or he will be eaten by a monster. Uh, And it has some interesting concepts floating around the edges. I don't want to spoil in case you do want to watch this, but it's a case where it's like clearly there's no discipline to it. Uh, no discipline to the filmmaking, no discipline to the script, and the acting is really bad from a cast of amateurs. But, man, I really wish it was good, because I love the idea of the, the archetypal boogeyman under your bed in your closet. It's something I think is underexplored in, in modern horror in a way that I think needs to be rediscovered. That's Don't Run. I wish it was better. Sorry to everybody who worked on it. Uh, movie I like a little bit more, uh, f- finishing um, our found footage marathon I talked about last week or at least ongoing it because it's not over by far uh, ghoul it is a ukrainian film starring americans uh as three trio of american uh filmmakers travel to the travel eastern europe to do a documentary about cannibalism specifically about a real world event where um where ukrainians were starved during the 1930s and made them resort to cannibalism and they get an interview with a guy convicted of cannibalism um decades later and they end up trapped in an isolated house by supernatural force. Um, And yes, there is lots of flesh eating and biting and nasty things happening. It's all found footage. Uh, But as far as found footage movies go, uh, surprisingly well shot, surprisingly well made. I was on board with this thing, uh, even though it does not do anything new. Uh, Anyone, Chris, uh, you're my go-to for for bouncing off horror. Have you seen Ghoul? I've
5: seen a different movie called Ghoul, not this one. I think there are several (laughs) movies called Ghoul. I have not seen this one.
2: Well, this one is from 2015. If you try to search for it on the internet, it's hard to find because there are so many movies called Ghoul. But this is a 2015 Ukrainian film. It is a totally solid one of those. Uh, I rented it for, I think, nine on Amazon. So it's not like to stream for free anywhere. Uh, all right. Wrap, wrapping this up with one more found footage horror movie. Haunted Hospital Heilstatten," a German film. And I want to say that normally when I hit play on a found footage uh, film, I expect to see a series of extremely low rent uh, production company names. Uh, if you ever see Uncorked Entertainment, I know I'm in for a wild ride of something very bad because Uncorked Entertainment plays before so many some of the worst movies I've ever streamed. Uh, but Haunted Hospital, Heilstaden, is a 20th Century Fox film made by 20th Century Fox's uh, international division and released in theaters in Germany, from what I can tell. And it, it's not very good. It, it has some interesting ideas with the main characters who are in the titular haunted hospital. Are trying to uh, make a YouTube video and they're, they're like uh, youtubers who've broken his hospital and their whole channel is that they do illegal things on camera haha ha, look at us and um, the movie wants to be a uh, commentary and criticism of modern YouTube culture but ends up feeling very finger-waggy in a really uh, condescending way that I thought was uh, initially interesting but ultimately goes in the direction where I thought Oh, you're just kind of up your own butt, aren't you? Because you're making a – your response to you know cheesy YouTube videos is to make a by-the-numbers found footage horror movie. So uh, that's not how you respond to that in any way whatsoever. You, you, you can't you can't fight uh, diarrhea of diarrhea. I'm sorry. Uh, that's Haunted <laughs> Hospital house
1: Okay, then. Uh, HD, what have you been watching?
4: I watched the new Netflix animated movie The Willoughbys, which is directed by Chris Pern and based off a children's book by Lois Lowry. And it's a sweet and whimsical uh, found family film about four siblings who are all the Willoughbys and... um, all have very very red hair and have been raised by parents who very love each other very much but very much hate them and have basically tortured and abused them their entire life but in a really whimsical family movie way and um it's they decide to take action against their parents and send them on a trip so that they can be a family by themselves but find um that their parents send nanny who actually ends up being the mother figure that they long wanted but um society gets in the way and they end up getting chased by social services etc and it's a really sweet whimsical family comedy but most um the best part about this movie is the animation style which is really really beautiful and inventive it reminded me a lot of a henry selick stop-motion animation film and though it's cg animated the way that they Uh, composed the animation for this um, really imitates that sort of staccato jerkiness of a stop motion animated film. And um, I talked to Chris Pern actually in an interview for SlashFilm.com, which you can read on the site. And he talked about how he achieved that. And a lot of it was just taking the, the frames and movement out so that there was a bit more of a leap between the poses. So there's just like a lot of empty space between uh, each frame, which end up making that sort of jerky style and giving it this really, this charm to it that um, it's a very otherwise, you know, pretty by the numbers family film, but it's really sweet. The story itself, you know, is pretty familiar, but I, I will say the animation is great. And I like that Netflix is investing in making CG animated films um, that are a little bit more experimental and a little bit more a uh, little different than what we usually see in a lot of three D animation and stuff. So it's charming. It's not as great as Claws, which I really, really loved, and I think has just a, a it's a better overall film. But The Willoughbys is is a, you know a charming film, and I I'd recommend it. And that's streaming on Netflix now. And um, I finished Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. I talked about this a couple weeks ago when I first started it, and the finale just aired. Uh, the, it's an eight-episode miniseries based on Celeste Ning's um, novel. And I actually learned after I, t- I spoke about it on the podcast that uh, the show made a couple of changes, namely in making Kerry Washington's character, who was originally white in the novel, into uh, a black mother. And I really I really like that change, and I think that works, it works so much for the show, which is about sort of class disparity and generational uh, tension and it works in this these themes of micro, racial microaggressions and racial tension in a way that is just, um, it's really uh, compelling and powerful. And I liked how it tackled those themes um, on a basis where it didn't feel like it was just shoving it in your face, but it felt like it was a really authentic way of going about it. And, um, you know, I, like I said before, Reese Witherspoon just gives the perfect, perfect, uh, almost comedic, sometimes chilling performance as that deconstructs the idea of like white womanhood uh, in a way that's just really well done. And Reese Witherspoon's just knocking it out of the park, and she again knocks it out of the park in the finale, which um, wrapped up the storylines. In a way, I think that was a little bit neat. Um, it talks about, again, like the generational tension and trauma and t- the idea of like not wanting to be like your parents and trying to uh, be better than your parents uh, in a way that kind of wraps it up uh, a little just a little aspirational, a little hopeful, hopefully, but uh I really loved the ending and uh, Reese Witherspoon's performance, which she gives this really horrifying scream um in, like delivery line delivery in this um to her daughter that is just like Tony Colette levels in hereditary that I made me think that, wow, I would love to see Reese Witherspoon. As a horror movie villain. And I tweeted about this, and Chris said she wasn't a horror movie, Fear, which I know, Chris. Whoa,
5: um, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you think I talk? Let's no, let's No, it no, i I'm kidding. I'm
4: kidding. <laughs> no. Um, but yes. <laughs> I appreciate that that reply, because uh, fear is a fun movie. But yeah, um, Little Fires Everywhere. I I highly, highly recommend this the series. Uh, it's streaming on Hulu now. I know a bunch of People on this podcast really liked Big Little Lies, which, again, I haven't seen, but I know I have, there are a lot of comparisons that have been drawn to Big Little Lies and Little Fires Everywhere, especially in the, the kind of character that Reese Witherspoon plays. But I think that um, most people, I think everyone on this podcast would like Little Fires Everywhere. You should check it out. Um, so I'm streaming on Hulu now. And this next film, I have to preface with a little context. Um, Basically, my roommate and I were talking about Young Frankenstein and how perfect of a satire it is, how much we loved it, and decided to watch it on one of our movie nights. But uh, it was only streaming on Amazon slash Hulu under the Stars add-on. So we decided to do the free trial for it. And with that free trial, we kind of ended up watching a lot of movies uh, this um, week because of that uh, most of it was me showing her movies that she hadn't seen before but there was one movie that I hadn't seen before and that's Spaceballs in keeping with the Mel um, Brooks theme so I have not seen Spaceballs before uh, I only know of the uh, recurring the frequently used gif slash meme from it uh <laughs> in which you know the 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 soldiers are ordered to comb the desert and it's a literal comb and i think it's such a funny joke and it still really holds up uh the the humor is really broad and uh not quite as subtle as some other mel brooks movies i've seen but i really enjoyed spaceballs it's not subtle at all about how much it's satirizing star wars but i i just i really enjoyed it i thought it was a fun a fun broad comedy i really enjoyed bricker morenus's performance and his big helmet and how he's what was was his question it's like his name was something helmet it was um dark dark helmet helmet. literally yeah yeah (laughs) and his ineffectualness uh i and um bill pullman very very dreamy in this movie uh he his hair just falls just so in the perfect way and um yeah it was oh i will say um mel brooks as the president of the of Spaceballs uh is rings a little bit too true right now he plays you know a a rich um greedy president who um again is also very ineffectual and it, it It's almost a little bit prescient to uh, our current leadership. So, you know, Mel Brooks, always on top of things. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that was my first time watching Spaceballs. Um, I'm I'm sure everyone here has seen it. Uh, Brad, do you have anything you want to just, like, say, shout out about Spaceballs?
3: I'm just so glad you watched it because, yeah, Mel Brooks is, first of all, he's just, like, a master of parody. And uh, Spaceballs does such a good job of spoofing Star Wars on so many levels while doing, you know, Mel Brooks' own brand of humor as well. And yeah, I, I'm glad that you, you enjoyed it. And now I, we maybe before Mel Brooks passes away, since he's getting old, maybe they can do a Spaceball sequel where uh, he comes back as the president somehow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, HT, can I say something controversial and get your opinion on this? Sure. Uh, the reason I love Blazing Saddles and uh, Young Frankenstein and High Anxiety is I feel like uh, Mel Brooks genuinely loves... Fr- old school horror he loves westerns he loves alfred hitchcock and he's really mimicking their filmmaking styles and really leaning hard on making movies look like movies whereas it like Spaceballs, he has a disdain for star wars he does not like star wars at all and do you think i'm incorrect in that reading
4: i don't think you're wrong um i don't think that he i, I think disdain might be too strong of a word i think that he just doesn't care for it as much, um, because the the humor around it is not as smart as as in say Young Frankenstein. I haven't seen Blazing Saddles, so I can't say as much about that. But um, uh, you're probably not wrong. I mean, I I don't agree with you completely, but yeah, I, I sure.
2: I think <laughs> I think it's like it's funny. I feel like I feel like uh, there's such a clear affection uh, for the material and these other parodies, where, or is, I feel like there's no affection for Star Wars here, Brad. Am I wrong?
3: No, I, I've never really thought about that, but I, I can see that. And I, I don't know, I think maybe part of it is just, maybe it's just some some of Mel Brooks's movies are more parody just for the sake of parody, whereas movies like Blazing Saddles and stuff like that, I think that they they offer a little bit of commentary on the genre and like Blazing Saddles specifically on, on race and things like that, whereas a lot of the stuff in things like Spaceballs and Robin Hood, Men in Tights, is really just a uh, a straight-up parody of the genre without much depth to it, I think.
1: But it also yeah, feels I like my... he's, like, mocking some of the ideas in, of Star Wars a little bit.
3: Yeah, I feel like
2: Young Frankenstein is shot so beautifully. There's so much care put into how that movie looks. Uh, like, the way it's lit, uh, the black and white cinematography, the performances are all presented in a way where, if you saw a frame of it, you could be you could think it was a 1930s universal horror movie. Whereas Spaceballs is a point-and-shoot, you know, overly lit comedy. I think Spaceballs is very funny. I just, I've always, it's always bothered me that Mel Brooks from the '60s and '70s is making parodies of stuff that he loves to death, and then in the '80s he starts making fun of things that he thinks are mockable. I
3: think with, I I think with Spaceballs, I, I think that he still does a good job of tapping into emulating like the look of Star Wars, especially when it comes to like, I mean, that long, lingering shot of the huge ship you know uh, mocking the opening shot of Star Wars the you know that 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 ship never that never seems to end um and I think you know e- even even his use of like matte paintings and uh miniatures and stuff like that that they 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 look pretty pretty good a lot like a lot of the Star Wars stuff did uh but I I agree with like as far as how you know the, the actors are shot in the sets and things like that it definitely looks uh cheaper than Star Wars.
2: But that's it I just want to complain for a second sorry hD
4: <laughs> no worries um but speaking of young Frankenstein um we again my roommate and I were talking about how great it is and she said she had never seen the 1931 Frankenstein so we decided to make a double feature of it and um it's it's You know, both movies are so perfect. Um, I had seen the 1931 Frankenstein just recently, I think just last year, and I love it dearly, even though it's just so funny how many things are changed from the Mary Shelley novel, like the fact that Frankenstein, his name is actually Henry Frankenstein. And a few of the things that um, my roommate had... Thought were kind of canon or like part of the iconography of Frankenstein uh, was actually cemented in, in Young Frankenstein. Like Igor, for example, uh, the hunchback assistant was a creation of the 1931 film, but his name was Fritz, and he was never he never existed in the Mary Shelley book. So it's just so interesting to me how much of the iconography around frankenstein and frankenstein's monster is really just from the young frankenstein movie and we we kind of uh, found ourselves referring back and forth to both films as we were watching them and it was so that was a really fun thing to do and a fun double feature i i recommend doing that um if you guys want to invest in a stars uh add-on or a free trial uh just uh, i do recommend doing a nice little um, double feature of Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein. I think we actually had to rent Frankenstein, so it was, yeah, you can rent it on Amazon, <laughs> but um, even though it's not Halloween, it's always good just to watch those movies, and they're, you know, classic and perfect. Um, and The rest of our stars sort of um, marathon, we ended up watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, another movie that I think is just perfect and excellent, and uh, I ideally love. I actually hadn't seen it since high school, I think. It was, um, fun fact, it was my orchestra teacher's favorite movie and uh during orchestra practice when he didn't feel like (laughs) conducting or teaching us we would just he would just pop on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and we would watch it and um it's just such a fun good-natured sci-fi comedy and Keanu Reeves uh, is so funny and so young in it. it most of it was me and my roommate uh commenting on how cute he was and he is very cute um and uh yeah Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Still great. Also on the stars add-on. And um, I'm still looking forward to seeing how uh, the was it Bill and Ted 3, Yeah, Bill and Ted, or is, is Face it, the yeah. Music. Y- yes, Bill and Ted, Face the Music uh, will pick up with those characters. Um, another one that uh, I, my roommate hadn't seen before and wanted to show her after showing her Shaun of the Dead. Uh, a month ago, we watched Hot Fuzz, which is, uh, you know, the movie directed by Edgar Wright and um is again so funny i feel like i don't have anything to say about it because it's just such a great funny perfect comedy and um yeah just I, it's my favorite of the Cornetto trilogy for sure uh and um despite like the <laughs> it is so violent but it's just it's just so so smart and so fresh each time i watch it and um uh, I wanted to finally force my roommate to finish Fleabag, which is on Amazon Prime, not Under the Stars add-on. And uh, it's, yeah, again, perfect. Just a lot of things that I forced my roommate to watch that I don't have anything else to add about because they're all great. I have great taste, guys. <laughs> Fleabag is the perfect show. You guys should all watch it. Not, not, not um, only do you
1: have great taste, but you're forcing your taste on your roommate.
4: Yes. What else are roommates for? Speaking of roommates, I watched The Lighthouse again. <laughs> <laughs> uh... <laughs> Which is, you know, the horror root uh roommate horror movie for our times really um this got added to amazon prime recently and i wanted to rewatch it because i don't think there's a movie this quarantine that i've quoted more or referred to more or thought of more than the lighthouse um which is a movie starring uh willem dafoe robert uh robert pattinson direct directed by robert eggers and um I absolutely loved when it came out last year, and I worried watching it again that it might hit a little too close to home because the story of two men in isolation who are driven mad by the the loneliness and their respective horniness that they... It, that they get driven to violence, um, it would maybe hit a little too close to home, but it doesn't because it's such a deranged, delirious depiction of that spiral into madness that it almost acts as a "look how bad it could be, but it's not us" type of situation. <laughs> um, and you know, it's very like, unlikely that you will end up killing your um, roommate over uh, or because a, a seagull cursed you, but. Um, the Lighthouse is really fantastic and it's just such a again bizarre and uh outrageous horror movie that I I, I really love it and um uh just want to say one thing that I, I really love it's not nothing that it's just kind of a, a thing I wanted to point out as I I really love that the end uh when he, Everything Robert Pattinson is like covered in oil and you can't tell whether or whether it's blood or oil because of the black and white color scheme. I absolutely love that touch. So I just want to say that perfect claustrophobic movie for our times. The Lighthouse streaming now on Amazon.
1: OK, Ben, what have you been watching?
0: So I watched two movies on the Criterion channel. The first was The Parallax View from 1974, which I'd never seen before. This was uh, directed by Alan J. Pakula, who also directed All the President's Men and Clute and several other movies. Um, This is like one of the most famous uh, political thrillers of the '70s, and it's easy to see why. After saying this, I, I, you know, obviously had heard of this movie and uh, had been wanting to see it for a while, and now I'm, I'm glad that I was able to because it's streaming on the Criterion Channel. And um, Warren Beatty stars as a journalist who sort of uh, he witnesses a political assassination, and then, like years later, uh, realizes that all of the other people who are at the who are present during that assassination are being bumped off one by one, and. He starts to uncover this massive conspiracy, and I was a little worried about watching a movie about political conspiracies in our current, you know, since, since whatever's going on in you know the the hellhole of our current political system. Um, and it is like very uh, unsettling to watch a movie like this that took place in like this really fraught period in American history, um, and and have it feel really vital uh now like I, I really wish that it didn't feel as vital as it does if that makes any sense but um man this is a really great movie and it looks terrific too um gordon willis the cinematographer shot this and he's the guy who shot the godfather and and a ton of other stuff he was named the prince of darkness and the way that the uh that he you know creates the framing for this and and uh, just some of the shots in this thing are just so, so gorgeous. So uh, I would definitely recommend checking this out. There's also, I-, I wanted to point out for the Boy Meets World fans out there, William Daniels, the guy who played Mr. Feeney on that show, has a <laughs> has a role in this movie, and he's obviously much, much younger than he was in uh, in full-on Feeny mode later in life. But it's it's always, I love seeing him pop up because I've only seen him in maybe three or four movies or something total, but it's always a treat because I, I grew up loving Boy Meets World and seeing him in any other uh uh, environment is always like oh wow it's a young mr <laughs> Phoenix. it's crazy so um yeah, uh, ben, so i have to ask now i have to ask have you seen 1776 yes i did yeah and I, okay. I think i talked about that on the podcast like a year or two ago when i saw oh, okay. it and he is he is that's a, one of the that one and then uh, i think he's in blades of glory the um <laughs> the, will Farrell and uh god what's the other guy's name john um uh, Brad, Dynamite help me Dynamite out here. Yes, face. yeah, Napoleon Dynamite guy, uh, John Heater. Um, yes, that 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 is the other movie that I've seen where William Daniels pops up. So, uh, 1776 is really great too.
2: Yeah, I, I I never watched Boy Meets World, so I watched 1776 over and over again as a kid. Believe it or not, so that to me is my William Daniels
0: performance. It's very <laughs> nice. awesome. Nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, has anybody else here seen The Parallax View or, or seen it recently by any chance? I,
4: uh, I've it's... seen it. Oh, go ahead, Chris.
5: No, it's great. It's great and bleak and I love it and uh, <laughs> I'm a I'm a big fan of, of movies like this about political conspiracies and uh it, it's like a indirect Kennedy assassination movie and I'm I'm a I'm really obsessed with movies that deal with the Kennedy assassination for some reason because I'm insane. That's all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is very bleak. What do you think about it, HT? Uh, I
4: I was uh, a little frustrated by it when I watched it. I saw it in college, and the bleakness actually kind of turned me off to it. I didn't like how just the, the ending really doesn't leave you with a good feeling. I, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I really loved how, how it was shot. And I think it makes a really nice double feature with um, all the President's Men, too, because oh, yeah. it has similar s- sort of, you know... The themes of con- political conspiracies, but All the President's Men does have a slightly happier, more uplifting ending. Um, but the parallax view is I should check it out again because I just, like just really did not like the experience of watching it when I saw it the first time. But um, I wonder if I will come around to it watching it again
0: yeah it is very unsettling to watch now but uh, so I don't know maybe wait (laughs) hopefully a few months and then maybe the world will be in a better place I don't know we'll see Uh, okay and then the the other movie I watched was Black Narcissus or Narcissus I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce it people the characters pronounce it different ways in the movie and then uh, I've heard you know historians and film professors talk about it in different ways afterwards too so uh, I'm not sure what the full uh, correct pronunciation is but this is another movie directed by Michael Powell and Emric pressburger who i've talked about their stuff um recently I, i've watched a uh, matter of life and death and the life and times of colonel blimp um they made the red shoes also they are just like some of my favorite filmmakers and i'm so uh grateful to be coming to their work even as late as i am to getting to it uh this movie came out 73 years ago and it is one of the most gorgeous movies i've ever seen it's it's has like some of the best cinematography of the any movie in the 1940s, I would say. Um, And it's basically, it's about this, uh, this group of nuns who have to set up a convent on uh, basically the edge of a mountain in the Himalayas. And this movie is just uh, all about repressed desire and it is like bursting with passion at every, uh, at every moment, but it's, it's all like the characters aren't able to act on it because they're nuns. And there's this one guy played by David Farrar who like, is an Englishman who sort of like wanders around and he's like a handyman kind of guy who helps them out in the area and he's got like his his shirt is hanging open for most of the movie he's got this hairy chest and he's just this like sexy guy who's walking around and he's like the object of everyone's affection and he sort of drives these women crazy like the way that i'm presenting it makes it seem like he's doing it on purpose and that's not the case but these women are these women who are basically trapped up there and isolated in this uh incredible environment are are just sort of slowly driven mad by uh, this location and their desires and, and all of this stuff. It's it's really, really, really good movie. And I want to give a quick shout out to Kathleen Byron's performance. She plays one of the supporting roles and she plays the the sister at the convent who sort of goes the most nuts out of everyone. And um, man, she really just tears into this part. And uh, as she gets more and more deranged, um, the, her makeup changes and the, the way that she holds herself changes. And she just is really able to... Uh, they like let her off the leash and she just makes the absolute most of it. So um, this is another movie that has gorgeous cinematography. Like I mentioned before it, it uh, Jack Cardiff who shot it actually won an Oscar for, for uh, cinematography that year. Um, But man, this uh, watch this movie. If you've not seen it, it's called black narcissus and it's on uh, the criterion channel right now.
1: Okay. We're almost an hour and 40 minutes into this, which I think speaks to how much every one of us is just like watching stuff at home these days. But let's go into our final two segments quickly. Uh, What have we been eating? I, this week, uh, Kitcher got a bunch of Japanese candies. I think like 12 different Japanese candies and snacks and drinks. And we recorded a video of us consuming them. I'm basically stealing uh, Brad's whole bit and making a video series on Ordinary Adventures. And uh, that video is now online. You can see it. You can see us uh, react in uh, pleasure and horror to some of these different candies and snacks i will say that i i do enjoy that japan like like so many different options they like you know in japan it seems like like here there's like six different flavors of potato chips it feels like japan there's like a hundred different flavors of potato chips anyways uh go watch the video if you want to see me reacting to japanese candy and snacks brad what have you been eating
3: well, first of all, let me say if you think there's only six different kinds of flavors of potato chips in America, you are not paying close enough attention oh, okay. to your potato chips, Peter.
1: I'm just saying, like in general population, like if you,
3: I think I think Japan has a lot more stranger and uh, flavors of potato chips than the United States does. But we we have plenty of flavors of potato chips here because this country is not healthy.
1: <laughs> I, I forget the one I, I we tried. I, it was like buttered something potato chips. It was good.
3: I don't know I've never, I haven't never. I have had a lot of Japanese. oh it was buttered no.
1: honey potato chips
3: oh that sounds good I wish that I had like a good uh you know Asian grocery around here so I can go and try and get some of these things because uh, there's some uh accounts I follow on Instagram that post stuff that you can find at Japanese grocers that they've imported from Japan that typically aren't available in the United States that I'd like to go out of my way to try but like the closest good Asian market is in Chicago and I'm not going to Chicago right now
1: you don't have a Daiso store near you
3: I, I don't. I don't. Not not here in Northwest Indiana.
1: <laughs> okay. What have you been um, eating?
3: But I've, I've gotten some. my hands on some interesting new things lately. Uh, I, I actually kind of found uh, all the new stuff that I've been interested in trying to get my hands on when I went to the store uh, this past week. Um, one of the things I got was, uh, this isn't really a new flavor or anything, but it's just a weird iteration of Twizzlers. They've released their licorice, but they've taken out the Twa. From the beginning uh and they're just called islers and so that basically means they've taken the twist portion out of their licorice and so it's just smooth twizzlers licorice rope basically um and as somebody who does take into consideration texture as far as my enjoyment of certain things i think i actually enjoy these iterations of twizzlers more than the twisted versions because the twisted versions can be kind of they're just a little jagged and can be kind of rough on your mouth but these are because they're smooth and they don't have those uh, those edges on them they're just slightly more enjoyable just just simply just because of the texture otherwise the flavor is exactly the same um and then i i got uh, fast food for lunch once this week and i stopped at uh kfc and I happened to accidentally stumble upon uh, their new secret recipe fries. Apparently these were tested sometime late last year and they're, they're not listed on KFC's official website. So I don't know if they're still being tested and they've just expanded where they are. Uh, but I went out of my way to try them and it, they have taken the herbs and seasoning that make up their original recipe for their chicken. And they've put them on uh, their these fries and they are definitely a new contender for best fast food French fries because they are incredibly well seasoned and they are very crispy and they're absolutely delicious. Personally, my favorite fast food fry is from Rally's because they're crispy and well seasoned as well. And these came pretty close. Um, I like them. I like them a lot. And so if you you find them near you at a KFC, uh, definitely try them because they're very, very good. Hmm and then on the uh candy side of things i tried the uh there's a new birthday cake uh flavor of kit kat uh, i think i said on here before i'm not the biggest fan of artificial birthday cake flavoring um but i do love kit kat so i wanted to see what they did with this and the, the flavor actually works here and i think it's because it more it tastes less like birthday cake to me and more like a confetti cupcake and that might be splitting hairs as far as the flavor is concerned, since they are somewhat similar. But it's I think it comes down to how they create the flavor of the frosting. And what uh, the birthday cake flavor mixed with the wafers and the white chocolate for the Kit Kat uh, made it really good. And I, I actually really like them a lot. Um, what I didn't like are the new fudge brownie M&Ms. They're roughly the size of peanut M&Ms. And they're just a little too rich and... Just too chewy. Um, I like brownies for the most part. I don't like them as much as like cookies, um, but there's there's just something about these that I just they were they were like I said too rich and I don't know I just I didn't enjoy them as much as I hoped that I would. I, I thought that they would be uh, actually be decent, but I was pretty disappointed with them. And then uh, there's new tiramisu Oreos that I picked up, and uh, these are they're not bad. They're not as good as I was hoping. Uh, they definitely have a strong uh uh mascarpone flavor to them and the smell that like immediately when you open the package you can absolutely smell smell that too but i think they made a mistake in using the chocolate oreo cookie for this one instead of the golden oreo cookie because i think the golden oreo cookie would have more accurately captured like the lady finger flavor that is in tiramisu and with the chocolate oreo cookie i just don't think it works quite as well but they're they're not bad
1: Interesting. So when you don't like something like the fudge brownie M&Ms, do you finish it?
3: Uh, It depends. Like sometimes if it's something I don't like, my girlfriend uh, might enjoy it more or I will uh, like hand them off to some other friends who are interested in trying them. That's not really something that I can do right now necessarily, Um, but (laughs) they do last for a while. So I'll probably just hold on to them and then see if other people want to try them once uh, when the time comes.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. This past week, I tried to play a board game yes. with a couple of friends over FaceTime and Tabletopia. Tabletopia is a program that you can play. I think you can play it in your web browser, but I got it through Steam, and I think they have a free trial. If not, only one person in the game actually needs to have the software um, and then they can host it for the other people. So you don't have to pay for it if it, only one person has to pay for it. We tried to play a game called Escape Tales, The Awakening. Uh, the, or I should back up. The, the interesting thing about Tabletopia is it's basically this virtual space where you can play any board game. And there's a lot of board games that are officially on there. Some of the biggest and best board games on BoardGameGeek are available on there. And some of them cost like an upcharge and stuff like that. But you're actually like all the cards and all the setup is done for you, but the rules are not, you still need to know the rules. So it's, it's almost like you're in a virtual world with the components there. You still need to do the actions. It's not like the game does the, you know, the in-between stuff for you. You still got to do that. Um, I will say it was a lot of fun. It was fun hanging out with my friends. It's, A little bit difficult, Uh, especially in this game. It was like an escape room game where it was like, if you do this, go to card number, you know, 85. And then we would have one of us would have to pick up this pile of cards and like sort through them with a mouse uh, pointer. It's really a lot of uh, it's very fiddly. Um, So I, I think we'll get better at it over time. But uh, if you are looking for something to do with your friends, check out Tabletopia. Jacob, have you been playing anything lately?
2: Uh, yeah, I played the digital version of Catan uh, on Nintendo Switch with some friends. And Catan is the uh, very famous, like, iconic at this point, European board game formerly known as Settlers of Catan. And the digital version I played was on Nintendo Switch, but I believe it's available on other consoles, Uh Clearly, the version I was playing felt like it was built for a mouse and keyboard, uh, but the control scheme was otherwise okay once you get used to it. This is a, you know, it's like, it feels like a parody of a board game. It's literally, you're on a, uh, an island, you are building towns, building roads, collecting resources, trying to be the first person to get 10 points. You know, very famous game amongst enthusiasts. It's essentially um, the monopoly of people who take board games very seriously in terms of, in terms of its popularity and influence. Uh, but it's good, unlike Monopoly. Anyway the one problem with digital version is that, uh, so much of Catan's fun is table talk, being able to look your friend in the eye, you screw them over or plead with them to make a deal, make trades and bargains. So in digital version, uh, there's no real way to do that. It it treats it very, um, almost, almost, uh, as if these situations can be done mathematically, and I guess they could be, as opposed to like being part of like a conversation. So to order to play it properly, I used to do what we did. We set up a Zoom conversation. Me and my friends we put the four players on it, and we uh, played it all with our Nintendo Switches in our hands, uh, but having a screen to see each other's faces so we can actually talk to each other and figure it out together and play together. And it ended up being a great time. I mean, I still prefer tabletop in person, uh, but this was a really, really good way to scratch that itch. And we also did our, my first Dungeons & Dragons game in uh, months uh, because we set it up on the internet. There's a uh, ser- service called Roll20, roll20.net, where you can essentially uh, put your campaign in there and everyone can share the, the campaign and see a screen so the DM can put their map and put notes and everything in there and you can roll your dice inside that system so that you know you can't cheat and everybody can see what you're rolling. And so I just had two monitors. I had a monitor with my character information and I had a monitor with the... the um, uh, zoom session to see, see all the other players and with the map and we played D D for three hours all over the internet and once again i would pr- prefer to do it in person but i can't we can't uh but combination of roll 20 and zoom ended up working out really really well and if you're looking to uh, you know find something to do with your friends you know there are plenty of tabletop options out there you just got to do a little bit of digging
1: i've actually heard there's like a vr version of Catan. have you ever tried playing that
2: I have not. I I don't own anything. I can do VR right now. Um, maybe someday. But right now, um,
1: I'm afraid of going to VR, Peter. I won't come out. <laughs> okay. That does it for today's episode of Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at Slash com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at Peter at Slash com. And write and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Hey, hey, Peter. Yeah, Jacob. Uh, you know, this podcast, we're like a, an hour and 52 minutes into this podcast. This might be like one of the longest water cooler podcasts we've ever done. I, I'm not sure we have time for the book today.
2: Uh, I think you can cut other things. Make room for the Gargantuan Book of Insult, Offense, Interfrontary, sharp Torts, repost, Caustic Quips, and imply Put-Downs by Louis A. Safian. Not available in bookstores, so clearly you need to come to this podcast to <laughs> so hear it. <sighs> I've moved to page 38 This is the crabs section Crabs <clears throat> And not the seafood, I might add You know, crabs uh, HG. Oh no H- uh, She's so disagreeable, her own shadow won't keep her company Okay
4: uh... I thought it was a different kind of crabs
2: uh, Oh, Chris Chris is so contrary He does everything versa vice I mean... Versa Vice. Oh, I forgot I had to say something. Yes. Uh, Peter, you can't tell him anything. He has a soundproof head. You can't tell him anything. He has a soundproof head. <laughs> Look, I need to tell these jokes until they get, until they get the laughs they, they deserve, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Peter, Peter, you have to acknowledge it or oh, he's just going to keep saying it.
4: But if he has a soundproof head, how, why, why would he acknowledge it? Ah, hey, can't, see, there you
2: go. You can't tell Peter anything. You are a soundproof head. Okay. <laughs> you can't tell Peter anything. You need a soundproof head. Damn I it, genuinely
0: <laughs> think he's been disconnected from the call or something. I don't know <laughs> what's going on now.
2: <laughs> uh, well, Ben, he follows a straight and narrow-minded path. Uh, okay. <laughs> Brad, he's so narrow-minded he can look through a keyhole with both eyes.
3: Seems like a good skill. Yeah.
2: Yeah, double division. Well, you're all crabs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wait, Jacob. Did we,
3: did we... Oh, there's Peter. <laughs> there he
1: is. I I received a phone call. Can I'm be, sorry. Completely
4: soundproof. Okay. <laughs> you
1: should probably tell that joke again, then, Jacob, just to be <laughs> safe. No, no, no. Okay. B- bye,
5: everybody.
3: <laughs>